as uh, some of you may have already seen, we made a change, and so we'll have a communion service today instead of next week. And so it's so that we don't do it back to back, but it's nothing wrong with doing it back to back, but we just decided that it should be one week in between. So that's why we're going to have it today. Let's pray. Father, King of kings and Lord of lords, the great God whose wisdom we can't understand. There's nothing about you really, Lord, that we can comprehend on this planet. The little we understand of your goodness, of your mercy, of your kindness towards us, and of all that you do. We just thank you and we join the elect in heaven who worship you even as we pray. We join them to say, may all glory, honor, dominion, power, majesty belong to you, for you deserve them. Ours continue to be the wonderment that you will even consider it in verses like us to bring praise to you. For the reason we are grateful that you have given us the ability to assemble together as you have uh, commanded us to do so especially as we see the evil days drawn near and we know we are in a tumultuous times we also understand that underneath are the everlasting arm that sustains us for this reason Father we are grateful that we have assembled and we do pray that God the Holy Spirit the perfect communicator will enable us to hear precisely what you have for us this morning. This is a request in Christ's name. Amen. We are still continuing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. First Corinthians chapter 10, verses 5 through 13. We have been dealing with the debt of some Israelites in the desert. We begin reading in verse 11. It reads, These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warning for us, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful, but he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now the primary message of First Corinthians chapter five, I mean chapter ten, verses five through thirteen that we have been considering for some time now, is this enjoyment of God's blessing under a good spiritual leader will not shield you from his judgment if you displease him. Now recall, we stated that there are three primary reasons for presenting the message of this section this way. The first is that the Holy Spirit conveyed to us through Apostle Paul that the date of majority of the Israelites in the desert was because of God's displeasure with them. A second reason is that the date in the desert of most of the Israelites is to dissuade us from evil desires that were indicated is the concern of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 6 through 10. The third reason is because Israel's experience in the desert is written down for us as examples and warning. Now we examine the statement of this fact of Israel's example in verse 11. And in our last study last week, we examine the warning or the exhortation given in verse 12. The cautions against self-confidence that may lead to failure 
in the spiritual life. We spend time considering the subject of spiritual vigilance as a manner to guard against uh, failing spiritually in a way that would be disastrous to the believer that can even lead to death. Now the possibility of death because of examples of Israelites in the desert and the death of some Corinthians that abused Lord's Supper. So we continue with the third reason of the message that we presented but considering then the last element of this third reason. The last element of the third reason is concerned with the subject of temptation or trial. Temptation or trial. In verse 13, presented in form of prefix. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, the Corinthians, and so all of us to know three facts about trial, temptation. A first fact about temptation or trial that the Holy Spirit through Apostle Paul wants uh, Corinthians and all of us to know is that no believer ever faces a temptation or trial that is not common to fallen humanity or that is unbearable. Now it is this fact that is stated in the first sentence of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 that reads, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Now by the way, our use of the word unbearable will become clearer when we examine a Greek word that we'll start look at later on in this study. Now we presented the first fact that the Holy Spirit wants us to know using the word temptation or trial. Since our English versions are divided in their translation of the Greek of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. Now some English versions such as the New English Translation or the Revised English Bible, they use the word trial. While others, such as the today's English version, use the word test. Test. Now the difference, or the differences though, in the translation of our verse in the English versions, is because of the word temptation of the NIV, that is translated from a Greek word, that may mean, an attempt to learn the nature or the character of something by submitting it to an examination. Hence, has the meaning of trial, test, examination. As that is says, Apostle Peter used our Greek word pierasmos in uh, regarding the suffering of, of Christians in First Peter chapter four verse twelve. First Peter, First Peter, chapter four, verse twelve. It is, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. So here the word is translated with the meaning trial. Now the word may mean an attempt to make one do something wrong. And so may mean temptation or enticement to sin. As that's the way Apostle Paul used it to describe those who are eager to be rich. That what they may face at the expense of trying to become rich, that is given in First Timothy chapter six, verse nine. First Timothy chapter six, verse nine. It is. 
people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them uh, uh, plunge men into ruin and destruction and the question is which of these two meanings then of the Greek word used captures what the apostle intended in our passage now truly it is difficult to decide because the two meanings are related in that there is the common element of examination involved. Now a person, of course, could argue that the best meaning in our passage is trial. First, because of the context. And because the verbs used, the verb seized and bear in the NIV are more applicable to trial than to temptation. Now, it is true that the verbs used are similar to what's used with our a Greek noun when it has the meaning trial. There's no doubt about it. It can have that meaning with trial. For example, when the verb endure or, pers- uh, or, or persevere is used, our Greek noun is translated trial as in James chapter 1 verse 12. James Now the reason some of these things become important is when people start claiming promises you need to know what you're claiming. Whether God is saying I will not let you be tempted beyond what you can handle or tried. We have to be sure we understand that. So that's why this, the, the meaning of the words are important. Here it is Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Now here a Greek word is translated trial. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, so people say, well, because you see, when they, usually when... Our Greek noun is used, and you have words like preserve and there. It has the best meaning trial. Well, to me, that's really not a strong argument, since a Greek verb that may mean to fall into is used with our Greek noun when it is also translated trial. In James, that you have chapter 1, look at verse 2. It is considered pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, the verbal phrase that you have in the NIV says, face trials of many kinds. Really, the Greek reads, fall into trials of many kinds. Fall into trials of many kinds. But another Greek Verb though that also may mean to fall into is used with our Greek noun when the meaning is sin. So we have that in the passage that we already cited to, uh, previously. That is this First Timothy chapter six verse nine. Let me. You don't need to go back. I just you listen and read it. Say people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. And into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, the word here, although it's translated temptation, really means fall into sin. So that's the issue. Doesn't the fact that the verbs use of uh, of the Greek uh, of the Greek associated with a Greek word in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that they are similar to the words used when our Greek now is translated trial, is a weak argument to support our Greek now being given the meaning trial. 
It's possible, but that argument is very weak. Now, this notwithstanding, it is a meaning temptation in the sense of an examination to learn the nature or the character of a person or to cause a person to do something wrong. That the word is used in our passage of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13. So we are saying that our Greek word should be translated really examination in our context. Or if you don't use the word examination, it can be translated temptation. Only that it is in the sense of an examination to learn the nature or the character of a person or to cause a person to do something wrong. Now there are at least four reasons for adopting this meaning. At least four reasons. Now this is one of those things that I, I need every now and then I remind you why exposition, expositional teaching is the right way to deal with the scripture. It exposes you to many concepts at the same time as you expose yourself to various parts of the scripture. In other words, it's not just one thing we talk about. But there are so many other truths that you, as somebody used to say, you get picked some truth from that and truthful principle by this kind of study. So by these reasons I'm going to give you contain some information that you should also recognize as a believer. So why do we take the meaning temptation instead of trial? Four reasons I'm going to provide you. First, the meaning temptation according to the experts in the Greek language is a more general meaning to capture the biblical sense of the Greek word used than the meaning trial or test. That's what they say. The new Bible dictionary, the third edition, page, uh, page 1161, has this to say regarding this word. It says, quote, The biblical idea of temptation is not primarily of seduction. That's what most people think. Once you hear the word temptation, that's what you're thinking. <laughs> seduction. He said, no, let me read that again. He said, the biblical idea of temptation is not primarily of seduction, as in our modern usage, but of making trial of a person or putting him to the test, which may be done for the benevolent purpose of proving or improving his quality as well as with the malicious aim of showing up his weaknesses or trapping him into wrong action. End of quotation. The theological lexicon of the New Testament, volume 3, page 82, implies that temptation and trial are inseparable because temptation is explained using the word trial in the sentence, and I quote them also. They say, hence, the religious and the moral meaning, temptation, which is a trial of virtue by means of affliction or adversity, or even by Satan's intervention. End of quote. So, what they are arguing, and what they explain to us is this. When you hear the word temptation, we modern people think of enticement to sin. And they say, no, it's not. The biblical concept has to do with trying to understand or to find the quality of a person or to find how weak a person is. So, in any way, that although those two are related, temptation is a word, a word that much more represents what the Bible has in mind in the, use of, in the Greek word use instead of our modern word of thinking about temptation. Second reason, the word temptation is not the same as sin. That should be very obvious. Well, that temptation is not the same as sin, because that's, once we hear the word temptation, many people are thinking about sin. No, temptation is not the same as sin. In other words, 
There is nothing in the New Testament that implies that the word temptation is in and of itself a sin. Now we know that the word temptation is not equivalent to sin because the Lord Jesus was tempted by Satan. But he was declared to be without sin according to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Hebrews Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 reads For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet was without sin. So immediately you can see temptation is not the same as sin. Now James also Tells us that temptation is an enticement to sin, but it does not become sin until a person yields to it. As we read in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. James James Chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, it reads, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desires, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. In other words, once you face a temptation, that's not a sin. Until your will is involved, you accept whatever it is that you've been tempted to do. Once you do that, then that is the time you say, it has taken a seed. And the result is going to give, give a birth. In other words, he has to become pregnant. And the birth is going to be called sin. What will result? So that's what it means. He gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So, the physical reason for taking the many temptation is, it is not, it's, it's, temptation is not the same as sin. Third reason, our Greek word that we adopted the meaning temptation or examination is translated trial or test only when there is suffering. Only when there is suffering do we find our Greek word that we say has meaning temptation or examination. That's when there's suffering, then we see the word being uh, translated with the word trial or test. Now this we can note first with the fact that the word temptation does not occur in the Old Testament scripture. The word temptation does not appear there. Although the authorized version, that's the King James version, used it. But that's not the correct translation as we will note shortly. The Septuagint, that is the translation, the Greek translation of the uh, Hebrew Bible, in that Septuagint used our Greek word three times in Deuteronomy to translate a Hebrew word that means trial or test. That is, of course, that which is a proving or examination with a focus of getting a response possibly implying a hardship in the process. So the Greek word is used in the Septuagint of Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 34.
Now for the most part, uh, those in terms of the Apostle Paul, most of them read the Septuagint instead of the Hebrew uh, Scripture. They use the translation, very many of them. So, they will be reading our Greek word that is used here in Deuteronomy is used to translate a, a Hebrew word that has that sense of a trial. Anyway, here it reads, Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another? By testings, by miraculous signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds, like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. Now see the phrase here, by testings that you have in the NIV, in the King James Version, you have by temptations, by temptations. Because that's the way they try to translate the Greek word. Really here, it is difficult to understand what temptations mean in this context. However, the testing or trials in Deuteronomy here refers to the various sufferings the Lord inflicted on the Egyptians to cause them to release Israel from slavery. So, the idea of temptation is not correct here. Even the testing thing is just sufferings. Anyway, so it is because of this interpretation though that in today's English version translated the word testings used here in the, uh, in the NIV they use the word plagues. In other words, they say by plagues. They didn't say, they didn't translate testing. They say by plagues because you have taken the meaning of the Greek word to have that meaning of plague, suffering. Now the other two usages of our Greek word in the uh, in Deuteronomy uh, is all, I'm not going to read them, but it's in chapter 7 verse 13 and in also chapter 29 verse 2. Now, both, all that reflects the same meaning of suffering that the Lord brought on the Egyptians. Now, the same limited meaning of our Greek word to reflect suffering is evident in the way our Greek word is translated in the NIV. It is then in the sense of suffering and difficulties that the word is used in the last statement to his disciples as he was going or he was about to go to the cross as recorded in Luke chapter 22 verse 28. Luke chapter 28 Luke chapter 22 verse 28. It is, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. So here he's really talking about his sufferings and difficulties. Now it is with the meaning of suffering that our Greek word is used in the Holy Spirit's encouragement of believers through. Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. First Peter chapter 1 verse 6. It is in this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he said, yes, we as Christians we may suffer, and we do. But we should rejoice knowing what's ahead of us. It's all going to end here. 
After this place, no more suffering, no more trial, no more illness, nothing. So no matter what we have, whatever, whatever you, your ailment may be, or whatever is uh, bothering you, you just recognize, yes, it's all going to end here. Therefore, I'm looking forward to a place where I won't have any of those things. So we have that as part of what should give us joy, even in the midst of suffering. And that's why I explained that you can be suffering and be happy on the inside. In other words, they are not truly, you know, people think, oh, you can be, you may be in serious pain and still have joy or peace, inner satisfaction. Because nothing touches that. And the world doesn't know what it is. A believer who doesn't understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the and empowerment the of, of the Holy Spirit will not even know what I'm talking about. You know, I mean that you can be you know, in pain. Your body aching and all kinds of things. Yet inwardly, you're at peace. That's hard to comprehend by many people. So Peter is saying, Yes, you may go through all that. You will have this inner joy. And that's what, to me, one of the things in my judgment, one of the ways to test your spiritual maturity is how much joy you can have, how much peace you can have in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your problem, whatever they happen to be. How composed are you? All of those talk or speak to your being spiritually matured or not. Anyway, it is with the meaning of suffering that our Greek word is used in the promise of our, our Lord to the local church in Philadelphia, one of the seven Asiatic churches, as we read in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. Revelation chapter 3 verse 10. This is what the Lord says the church in Philadelphia. He says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. A time of testing. Of course, right now we're going through that. We don't know. It could be what the Lord is talking about. What he told the, the local church in, in uh, Philadelphia, which by the way, if some of you remember, we, I spent time just dealing with the uh, the seven Asiatic churches, which is online, and we started Revelation chapter 2 and, and chapter 3. And my reason I, I say that the reason I didn't really go into the whole Revelation at that point is because I was concerned with the pattern that we're going to see throughout the uh, church while it's on this planet. And that's what happened in those seven churches, are exactly what we're seeing today. There are some local churches that are going through tremendous testing. And some of us don't know what it is. Because we live in, you know, uh, in a relatively calm and peaceful place. As I'm speaking now, you wouldn't even know that there are some Christians underground this morning, hiding, just to hear the word of God explained to them. They're going through some trial. Of course, we, we take it for granted. Some of them walk seven, eight miles on foot. And some of us are only 10 minutes, 5 minutes away. We can even get here in time. See? So you see all that. We, we don't understand that. But those are patterns that will happen in all the churches. Throughout the state of the church on this planet. So our Lord is saying to them, If you remain faithful, I'm going to bring a lot of trials. But you're going to be preserved. That is something that you can claim as a believer. We're in a war now, there's a whole lot of confusion. But one of the things to me, one of the enjoyable things is, if you know where you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you're buried in the world, 
You don't care. I mean, all this, I call them noises going around you. They will not affect you. If you are drawn one way or the other, that means you don't know what you are dealing with as a believer. Because there is so much turmoil, so much trials going on. But the Lord promised those who remain faithful to him, he's going to keep them in the midst of all this. Anyway, the point is that our Greek word is translated trial or test mostly in the context of suffering and so it is limiting when our word is translated trial or test. In other words, if the Greek word we are looking at, if it is translated trial or test, it's very limiting. And that will lead me to the next reason I, I give. Now, so the fourth reason is really that the meaning, temptation, or examination allows a broader interpretation and application of what is given in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. So then, if we adopt the meaning trial or testing, this implies that only suffering is implied in our verse. If you take that meaning, that's what you come up with. That Okay, it has to do with only trial or testing. All that suffering is involved. Well, this is not necessarily the case since there's also the, con- uh, the context that indicates that the subject of sin is involved in the statement of First Corinthians 10 verse 13 when it says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We're saying that is not only dealing with trial or suffering. But there's a concept of sin involved. And all that we're going to be, I don't think we'll get to it this week, but by the grace of God, uh, next week. But at least we'll make headway. So be that as you may, our using of the meaning examination or temptation in the sense of an examination to learn the nature or the character of a person or to cause a person to do something wrong. That meaning enables us then to recognize that the examination we face in our spiritual life can be friendly or hostile. That's, we all face examination as Christians, as believers. But what the Greek word that we just have examined, understanding it makes us recognize that yes, the examination we're going to face could be what we call friendly, or it could be hostile. We're going to develop those two uh, in the rest of our study uh, this morning. Friendly or hostile. Now, friendly examination is always from God with the purpose of proving our faithfulness to Him and so has nothing to do with sin in a moral sense as we understand the word today. Now to use word that most of us uh, are very uh, familiar, or that is very uh, familiar to us, we will use the word test or testing to describe the friendly examination that we are concerned. Now, we, you know, as I do I say the meaning is examination or temptation, but for purpose of our study and comprehending, most of us are used to the word test or, soft, or, or testing. So I'm saying for the friendly testing or examination that we face in the spiritual life, we just use the word testing to describe it. Anyway, such friendly examination may involve Painful experience. It may involve painful experience. And, but though its goal is not seen, but to test faithfulness. To test faithfulness. Now, the classical example of this kind of examination 
to prove one's faithfulness to the Lord is that of Abraham when God commanded him to sacrifice his unique son Isaac as recorded in Genesis chapter 22 verses 1, uh, 1 and 2. Hold on to Genesis uh, from chapter 22 for now. Genesis 22 verses 1 and 2. What I'm going to show you an example of a friendly examination. That's difficult, but it's a friendly one. So we read in Genesis 22 verse 1 reads, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son. Now, that when we studied Genesis in detail, I told you, that's not a good way to translate it, your only son. That's not his first son, it's Ishmael. So this is who really should be your unique son. Because that's the one that came to be in uniquely. Because Sarah has passed menopause. So it's a child of miracle. So he, he is unique. So that's really, if you say, take your son, your unique son, Isaac. Now the reason I make comments, comments like this in, in the midst of this kind of thing is, we live in a world where people are attacking the scripture because they don't know what the Bible says. So they say, well, you say that your Bible says you take your son, your only son Isaac. You say, aha. But Abraham had a first child by Enem Ishmael. So how can your translation be correct? Well, it's translation. It's not interpretation completely. But if we say your unique son, then no one will argue that. So that's why we do this thing, kind of things instead of preaching to you. Anyway, so he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. Now that, uh, that clause is very important. Whom you love. Now I know every parent, at least they have fried their brain with drugs and all kinds of things. Otherwise, every Every parent loves a child. I mean, they show in different ways, but every parent loves a child. Now, can you, let's just take a case where you really, you're not too fond of your, do- your daughter or your son. Something rare, but it could happen. So you wouldn't mind that if, if that's the kind of thing, because say, okay, go take that sacrifice to me. So, okay. But by saying, whom you love. That means the one you treasure so much. Then it says, And go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a bond offering. On one of the mountains I will tell you about. Now God was not being hostile to Abraham as he might appear. Because he commanded him to sacrifice his unique son, Isaac. But really, he was examining or testing him in a friendly way to prove his faithfulness to him. Now that sounds tough for God to say, go, sacrifice your son, the one you love. But I'm saying it's just a friendly thing from God's perspective. Because he was going to use it to prove something about Abraham's faithfulness to him. Now this is confirmed by what God said about Abraham after he passed his examination with what we call, uh, you know, with great distinction. Kuma laude. He passed it. So here it is. This is what God confirmed in verse 12. Look at Genesis 22, look at verse 12. Genesis 22, verse 12. 
It is, do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Unique son again. Well, the thing is, as I explained this passage when we studied in detail, some people jump on this passage and say, okay, you see, God doesn't know the future. His knowledge is limited. He only knows when it, it happens. So they keep saying, well, God is limited in his knowledge. And they, they have all this, but I explained that that's not what this passage is all about. I'm going to just give a, a summary of that explanation at uh, this point. Now the closing, now I know that you fear God means that God is saying that now he has tested or confirmed that Abraham is a person who is totally devoted to him a matter of obedience and honoring him. Hence, we can say that the Lord tested or examined Abraham in a friendly manner, although he required of him something difficult. But Abraham came through in flying colors to confirm both to angelic observers. You see, all the angels were watching all this. Every one of them. All the sons of God, all the gods, as we say, we started in chapter 8. All the gods, they were watching all this. God had given instruction. They were watching what's going to take place. So, but uh, no doubt Abraham confirmed to both those uh, angelic observers and humans that yes, Abraham is faithful to his God. Now, so our assertion that when, Ab- when God said to Abraham, Now, I know that you fear God, that he meant he had confirmed Abraham's faithfulness, enables us then to make two deductions about friendly testing. What God said here allows us to make deductions. Two deductions at least about friendly testing. Now, friendly testing or examination is usually directly from God to an individual or a group without his using a hostile intermediate agent such as Satan. Although he could use a prophet to deliver. His message of testing to an individual or to a group. So that's the first thing that is usually going to come from God Himself directly. Another deduction is that the outcome, the outcome of God's friendly examination is assured, whether negatively or positively. That's assured. Now God had in his plan that Abraham will pass the examination of testing for him to offer his son. It's already in God's plan. He's going to pass it. Ain't no way Abraham would not pass it. Because that's in his plan. Thus, God confirmed that uh, he had in his plan about Abraham, which is he's going to pass this exam. So he did. Now negatively, the failure of some of the Israelites, when God tested them regarding obedience to his instruction was also assured. In other words, it's also in his plan. They're going to fail. Now if they didn't fail, we're not going to be studying what we're studying today. That's part of that plan. So that they will fail and so the church of believers thereafter will know what God doesn't like. So it was in his plan. So the, in this case, the Lord tested Israel, as we read in Exodus chapter 16 verse 4. Exodus
Exodus chapter 16 and hold on to Exodus I'll take a few more verses here still in that chapter 16 Exodus 16 verse 4 reads Then the Lord said to Moses I will rain down bread from heaven for you Now we I'm not going to uh, in our Wednesday studies, we are fast approaching this passage, but we're still a long way. So when we get there, I'll go into detail about this. But for now, let's just read through it. So the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Now some Israelites, of course, failed the test. Of an instruction about the manner that the Lord gave them through his servant Moses. As we read, still in that chapter 16, look at verses 19 and 20. It reads, Then Moses said to them, No one is to keep any of it until morning. That's the instruction. But look at what happened. However, which is usually what it is, and I keep reminding you, some of you, you sit here, you hear me expose, uh, do a lot of exposition, on this, you know, explain all this. You walk away, you ignore it. That's, that's up to you. It's, that's, not, that's not my business. It's between you and the Lord. But that's just the human nature. Some will hear the truth. They hear it, they say walk away, ignore it. And look at what happened here. That's what happened. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning. Moses said, don't keep any until morning. Don't do that. They said, well, I don't know about this Moses, whether he's serious. I don't, you know, that's his opinion. And, And so, look at what happened then. So they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots. And began to smell. And when we, when we actually, on Wednesday, when we get to this passage, I will really tell you what it means to smell. So for now, let's just go. So, so Moses was angry with them. So this is this God's testing them that they're going to fail. That assured that we are going to have a warning from God for all ages of believers. So that's why it's included in God's plan and the outcome was certain that they're going to fail. There's no way they could have passed it. And, I mean, some of these people anyway. So we can see that. Now, Job's testing, although involved painful experiences, is, in a, in a sense, a friendly examination. Now, we say this because it was God who suggested his testing. As we read in Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Job, Job, I hold on to Job, I'll pick up some verses there. Job chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It is, one day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. Of course, when we studied uh, uh, chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, I uh, make reference, angels here really uh, means sons of God. It says, to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. Now I will, I will think that every one of us here should have that desire that God can say this about you. When he says, there is no one on earth like him. That should be our desire for God to make that kind of 
cometh about us. There's no one like him. He said, there's no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. By the way, blameless doesn't mean perfect. It just means the person is faithful to obeying God's word. It doesn't mean perfect. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Now we say that God suggested the testing of Job because he called attention to Job's spiritual character in the in question that he gave to Seth. And look at that verse 8 again. Say, Have you considered my servant Job? So God asked Satan if he had paid attention and thought to get a job. Now it is this question that led to Satan's claim that Job was devoted to the Lord because of his goodness to him, but that if Job was examined by the Lord through painful experiences, he would not be faithful to him. As the implication of what Satan said, still in that Job uh, chapter 1, look at verses 9 to 11. 9 through 11. It reads, Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. In other words, this is to me, this is one of the uh, outside what happened with uh, the case of Adam and Eve, I, it seems to me that this is probably one of the next things that is important in God's dealing with humans to reveal something. That is to say, Satan is saying that people can only worship God because of what he does for them. And God set out to prove him wrong. That people are going to worship God because of who he is. Now this is what we see today. All these prosperity preachers, that's what they are doing. They are telling people, God is going to bless you if you worship him. So people think they are thinking in terms of prosperity. Instead of, in other words, as people say, what have you done for me lately? That's what people do. They forget what you did yesterday and you know, then what happens today. So, People are thinking, what's God going to do for me so I can worship him? That's Satan's charge. God says, no, people can worship me because of who I am. And you should ask yourself that question. Are you one of those who worship God because of who he is or what you think you're going to get out of him? Anyway, anyway so God gave permission to uh, Job, I mean to Satan, to test Job. And after the first round of testings or tests by Satan, Job proved faithful. So we gather from, look at verse 21 of the same chapter 1. Look at verse 22. Sorry, verse 22. Verse 22 reads, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Now consequently, God continued to commend Job for his faithfulness. Look at chapter 2 now, verse 3. It is, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity. See, that's, that's showing his faithfulness in spite of all that has happened to him. He said he still maintains his integrity. That is devotion to the truth in this case. Though you incite me against him to ruin him without any reason. So God's response to Satan led to the second round of tests. But despite the tests, Job still maintained his devotion to the Lord. So based on the deductive principle we stated then, that is that the outcome 
of God's friendly examination is assured, whether negatively or positively, we are sad that God knew as part of his plan that Job will pass the examination of Satan. And so we can say that the test of Satan on Job, although painful, was in a sense a friendly examination suggested by God to Satan. So we should not really doubt that the outcome of Satan's testing of Job was assured of positive outcome because of the uh, nature of God that indicates he has knowledge of the outcome of an event before it even begins since that is part of his plan as implied in the Lord's declaration recorded in Isaiah 46 verse 10. Well, looking at time, we take a break and after the Lord's Supper we'll continue with this passage.